This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Zach Garner. Now, many of us hear the words grit and resilience thrown around a lot, but I promise you, after listening to Zach's story, you will truly understand the meaning of both. So we discuss a host of topics from Zach's journey into the military, passing selection into the Green Beret community, his epilepsy and TBI, the incredibly healing power of plant medicine, his ride across the country, his near-fatal accident being hit whilst on his bicycle, the flesh-eating bacteria that almost took his legs and then his life, his mental health journey, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible story, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Zach Garner. Enjoy. Well, Zach, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast this evening. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the offer to come on here and share my experience with everyone. And yeah, looking forward to chatting with you. Brilliant. Now, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Beautiful. Now, when... I think of Louisiana, sadly, obviously, we think about the Katrina incident. Did it make its way or have any impact up by where you are? Um, There was definitely some impact. I was not living here at the time. Um, When Katrina hit, I was actually living over in Germany. I just moved here about a year and a half ago. So I can't speak to Katrina personally, but when I moved here, Hurricane Ida hit the week after I got here, and we had the roof ripped off the house we were staying in at the time. So that was our introduction to Indiana, to, to Louisiana was hurricanes. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Okay, I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born, and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. So. I was born in Springfield, Illinois, but didn't live there too long. My father was in the military. My mother was a nurse. I have an older sister, two years older. And we ended up moving to El Paso about a year after I was born, El Paso, Texas. And we were there for a couple of years. And then my dad got stationed in Indianapolis, Indiana. And he retired out of Indianapolis, Indiana, so I stayed there until I was 18 years old. Now, with you having a father in the military, obviously we're going to get to some of the mental and physical challenges of your service. 
did he ever discuss any of the kind of ripple effects from his career as you got into the military yourself? So originally, he was not on board with me joining the military. And the reason was he was a Vietnam vet, did three tours in Vietnam. And he was just like, you don't need to to do that. I did it. We're our family's good. You don't need to do that. And I was very aware of myself and very honest with him. I said, Dad, I'm not mature enough to go to college. It'll be a waste of time and money, mostly your money. And I don't want to stay in Indiana. So I'm going to join the military. And his initial reaction was, okay, well, let's go talk to the Coast Guard recruiter. And so we did. I, I entertained it. And I went in. I met with them. I told them I wanted to be a rescue swimmer. They're like, okay, you know, we got to make sure you can meet certain requirements before we can guarantee that that's the job you'll get. So I did all my testing and everything through the Coast Guard recruiter. And then when it came time to sign my contract, I realized that it was going to be a year before I could even leave for basic training. And I was ready to go the next day. I was ready to get out of Indiana. There wasn't much but cornfields. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go talk to the army recruiter now. So once I had all my testing done, I showed up, I was like the dream child to the army recruiter because I was like, Hey, all the hard work's done. We just got to pick a job, come up with the terms of my contract and off I go. So I walked in there and I was like, what's the earliest I can leave? And they were able to get me out in like two weeks. So it was a pretty quick process. Um, and I didn't originally join on an SF contract. I wasn't one of the 18 x-rays. I came in initially as a forward observer. And yeah, you know, my dad turned around, like by the time he wasn't up, like he wasn't mad that I joined the army. It was just something he was like, I don't want you to have to experience what I experienced. And we were already at war. I joined in 2004. So, yeah, I think it was just him being protective. But at the same time, like the day that I shipped out and then when I graduated basic training, he was very proud of me. And so and he let that be known. And over the course of the next couple of years, as I deployed to Iraq and came home, he really opened up a lot more about his experience because now it was like, a bonding experience for us to be able to to talk about it and actually really understand what was going on. But as a child, he didn't talk about his experience too often. A lot of the Vietnam, pretty much all the Vietnam vets that I've had on, and certainly some of the observation of their children when they've spoken about their parents, uncles, etc. It's so different than the other veterans that came home. You know, you had a lot of the World War II veterans, and through the the learning curve that I've been going through, I kind of shifted from all the World War II vets came home to a ticker tape parade. Everything was great. They rolled up their sleeves, greatest generation, to realizing, okay, that wasn't the case for all World War II vets. But overall, there was a sense of pride for our returning veterans. Then you get to work to the Vietnam vets. Um, you know, obviously you had career as well. 
and it wasn't just the some of them slipped through the cracks there was a there was a blatant um negative emotion towards a lot of these men and women many of whom were enlisted i mean excuse me were uh were on the draft they, they didn't enlist initially um what was your father's experience of homecoming did he ever open up about that um yeah he actually i think the first time i really heard him talk about it was when i came home it was either my first or my second deployment from i think it was my second deployment to iraq i was coming home and you know this was 2007 so we were still pretty pretty active over there and there was a lot of support for veterans coming home and so like if you walked through the airport in uniform, you know, people were offering to buy you a beer, buy you a meal or coffee or whatever. And so I was coming home and all of my friends, my girlfriend, my family, they were all there. They had a big banner that said Zach's back from Iraq and they're standing there right at the security checkpoint. And I get off the plane and then the whole airport like stops and applauds. And it was, you know, kind of an embarrassing experience, but awesome at the same time. And we were driving home afterwards and my dad was like, that's really good to see. And I was like, yeah, it was cool. And he was like, no, you don't understand. Like we came home and we were spit on and called baby killers. And it's awesome that you're not having the same experience that I had. And so that was, and that was pretty much the end of the conversation. You know, there are some things that it was like, okay, he shared a little nugget of information. I'm not going to pry. If he wants to talk more about this, we will. Um, And that was pretty much the extent of the conversation, but over, you know, the, so he passed away in 2009. So the five years that I was in the army before that we, um, yeah, we did really start to, to share our experiences. And he kind of coached me through my career too, you know, and worked on me with professional development. And, you know, as I was studying for the E5 board or the E6 board, he would, you know, I'd go home on leave and he'd sit there and flip through flashcards with me. And, you know, then it would spiral into discussions where, you know, he'd do the typical dad thing. Oh, well, back in my day. And yeah. So... Now, with three doors, excuse me, three tours in um, Vietnam, you know, you're talking about a high-op tempo probably with most of the, the men and women that were over there. Was there a ripple effect mentally for him? Because as you said, when you, when you come back and there's a kind of tribal acceptance and hopefully some sort of way of processing what you've done for your nation, that may give you the tools to process it, you know, a certain way. But if you come back and you spit on and call a baby killer, I could imagine that's very jarring mentally for a lot of our veterans from that particular um, era. Yeah. Um, so the reason he did three tours in Iraq was because he kept getting sent to Korea <clears throat> and he hated Korea. So he kept volunteering to go to Vietnam thinking once I do this tour, they'll send me back to the U S and then they sent him back to Korea. So he'd volunteer to do another one really? and they'd send him back. Yeah. And they'd send him back to Korea. So that's how he ended up doing three pretty 
quick op tempo trips to to Vietnam. And it definitely had a mental effect. He never, that's one thing he didn't talk about very often. But as I got older into like the late years of high school, 17, 18 years old, right before I joined the military, I started my dad, I ended up moving in with my dad for those last two years of high school. And we ended up becoming really close. And he did start, he didn't talk about the war. He didn't, but he did start to open up about problems he had when he came back. And a lot of that was, you know, he, my dad was of that generation that they didn't really seek counseling or therapy or, you know, mental health wasn't something that you really talked about. And instead it was just create a distraction. And for him, that distraction manifested in drugs for a long time. And so, and he did share that with me. And, you know, he never said like, this was a product of me coming back and not knowing how to deal with the issues that were in my head. But I think now having experienced some of that stuff myself, I think it definitely contributed to him searching or just trying to numb those, the, the pain, the thoughts, all that. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think this is important, especially as you lost your father. And I, I, I'm so sorry for your loss. A lot of these men that we're losing now, whether it's the health side, my, my father-in-law has uh, had Agent Orange exposure and he's been battling all kinds of cancers and he's doing well at the moment, but it's a kind of, you know, reoccurring thing. But a lot mm -hmm. of these voices were lost, you know, whether it was the suicide, from what I understand, a lot of the, the 22 that we count are actually our Vietnam era veterans who jumped into some sort of profession and now they're retiring. And now they're finding themselves out of a tribe once again and having to process what happened, you know, 30, 40 years prior. Um, but it's important as well, I think, from, from a multi-generational standpoint. As I started interviewing more and more people, you realize that granddad actually struggled when he came home from World War II. And that turned him towards whatever negative coping mechanism that then affected dad, that then affected the person I'm talking with that day. So I think these, yeah. these, these previous conflict veterans, it's important that we do hear their stories too. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and we can all learn from each other. You know, sharing, I think that's one area where you know, social media and everything is assisting is it gives people the opportunity to share the lessons they've learned. And that may resonate with somebody that's going through something similar, or maybe they're not now, but they, they hear that story, they read that story, whatever. And then when they are faced with some sort of obstacle, they can refer back to that and apply some of those lesson you know a lot of what we learn is through retrospect and if i can share my story through retrospect and one person then two years from now something happens and they're faced with some sort of similar situation they can be like i'm going to try what that guy zach said you know and so yeah i think that's one area that that social media has really allowed us to grow 
Absolutely. Well, you mentioned, you know, the the transition into the military. When you were a school age, though, were you already already dreaming of the military, or was there another profession on your mind? Um, I wasn't dreaming of much. <laughs> um, I was a pretty aimless child. Um, didn't really know what direction my life was going to take me. Um, at, at a young age, I started playing guitar and I was either going to be a professional skateboarder or a musician. Those are like the only two options. And so I think up until like the week that I left for basic training, I think a lot of my friends and family thought it was a, a joke and that I, I actually left for basic training on April fool's. And some of them really thought on April 1st, I was going to be like, guys, I was just kidding. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I mean, so I grew up, you know, hearing little bits of my dad's experience. Again, not a lot of stories about Vietnam, but his army buddies would be coming over to the house and I'd hear them telling stories about whatever was going on at work or training exercises or And I was always intrigued by it. It always sounded cool. I loved going in the backyard or into the woods behind our house and, you know, playing, playing soldier with my friends. But yeah, yeah. Up until I was almost 19, I just, I didn't really have a direction. I was busy, like I said, playing guitar, skateboarding, chasing girls and, annoying my mom (laughs) now with the the physical prep i mean that skateboarding obviously is is movement absolutely but it may not be a high level of strength and conditioning um were you playing other sports as you progressed through the school years so i played men's volleyball actually i was the captain of our school's men's volleyball team and I'm 6'3", so it just seemed like i wanted to get into a sport and I was not good at basketball. So I was like, this is a sport that tall people are good at and ended up just picking it up really quickly and was on the varsity team the first year that I ever played volleyball. And then my junior, senior year was the captain of the men's volleyball team. So that was something that I definitely enjoyed doing, definitely helped get me in shape. And then from the time that I started talking to the Coast Guard recruiter till the time I left for the Army, I was going to every, you know, the the recruiting stations would always have, you know, PT classes throughout the week for recruits to come. And I was going to anything and everything that I could get my hands on because, and this continued throughout the rest of my career, but I've always had the mindset of like, I don't want to be surprised by how hard something is. I want to push myself to those limits before. So then any other stressor and any other factor that is in play is all I have to worry about because I can confidently tell myself I've done this once before. I just have to do it here now. And so I tried to apply that and, you know, basic training, you know, I don't want to say it's, it's not hard because for some people it is hard, but for me, it it wasn't hard. And, you know, I'm also my personality type. I don't know what this says about me. I hope it's nothing bad, 
but I feed off other people's weakness around me. Um, so when other people, you know, when we're doing pushups or we're doing a five mile or 10 mile run or whatever, and other people quit first, that fuels my fire to keep going. And it definitely benefited me later on as I was going through selection and the special forces qualification course, because every time somebody else quit, it just gave me that much more drive to make sure I didn't do that. Now, did you deploy in the regular army before you went to SF? I did. I had two deployments to Iraq with the regular army. So a question I love to ask people who have seen combat. Um, and the reason I ask this question is very simple. For someone like myself, who has never been in the military specifically, we get a very polarizing view on the media, especially in the US, of war. Either one side, kill them all, let God sort them out. The other side, as you touched on, they're all baby killers. And then you have the real men and women that actually, well, children, really, that we send over to war to fight for our country. It's a two-part question. The first part, despite the politics that sent you over there, was there a moment where you realized that there were, for example, atrocities being committed that you understood that there were some some people that needed to be taken care of over there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there were certain points in my career where we, you know, we would work, in, we would be embedded in villages with a very small number of people, a small detachment, and we're trying to get this whole village on our side, but everything is so tribal over there. So this tribe doesn't like this tribe. And so if, you know, as the Americans in the city, one thing that would happen almost nightly is somebody would pull up to the gate of our compound and wave us down and they'd have somebody in the back of their car that was like shot or they stepped on a landmine and their leg got blown up or, you know, maybe they were sick, whatever. There's something we were like the local health care and it worked in our favor because we had very qualified medics there that could treat things. And we also have antibiotics and all kinds of things that can help save them. So it helped us build rapport but what we'd find a lot of times is not a lot of times, but I did see this happen is somebody would get brought to us and then the local, you know, governor or whoever is running that village, whoever's in charge in that village would come. And if that person was from another tribe, they put us in the position where they'd be like, if you save their life, we're done here. You guys have to get out of my town. And so now you're faced with that moral dilemma. I'm not going to let this person die, but I also don't want to have 35 Afghan men coming, trying to destroy us in a couple hours. And so that was, that was really hard to balance. And that was Afghanistan. That was Afghanistan. Yeah. Iraq, um, it was it it was the same, you know, Sunnis and Shias and whoever you're working with, the other one, it's like a double edged sword. Like there's just it's hard to figure out everyone's agenda. And, you know, at the end of the day also 
in both those countries, from my experience, a lot of them just wanted to soak up as much as they could from the U.S. government so that when we did pull out, they had those resources, that money, whatever they could to, because everybody knew all along, as soon as America leaves, they're right back where they were. And so everybody was just trying to get as many resources and as much money, as many weapons, as many bullets, whatever it is to protect themselves once we inevitably leave. That's so sad because, I mean, we hear the differences and you know, you'd look at the, the tribal, um, you know, the, the tribes within Afghanistan, oh, they don't like each other because they're this or that. And you look at, you know, Sunnis and Shiites and all these different sects. But then you look at the U.S., they look at the, you know, the, the anti-police versus the pro-police and the Democrats and the Republicans. And we have the same thing. And I think the the issue that you see globally is the moment that you focus on you, the things that you're not. Um, aligning with and miss the other 90% the human experience that you share then you end up with Gaza or all these other conflicts that seem you know completely unsolvable 100% 100% yeah it's we're, we're definitely following in those footsteps in in modern day America and and it's it's sad and it's scary you know, but yeah, people choose to focus on what they don't have in common, just like you said, instead of what they do have in common. And if there's one thing that someone doesn't agree with, they'll latch on to that. Now, now the other side of the, the question, and you kind of touched on it with, you know, the, the aid that was rendered to these people that were brought in the cars, but again, you're talking about these countries and one of the things were the biggest misnomers and, and the irresponsible reporting that happens a lot is we're at war with Iraq, we're at war with Afghanistan, where the reality is there are extremists in these countries that are murdering their own people. Were there moments of kindness and compassion that really stuck with you amidst these battlegrounds that you were in? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In in both countries, I mean, so 2007, I was in Iraq and we had a dust one incident, which is where a soldier goes missing. Um, in this case, it was three soldiers. We had a unit that was ambushed in the middle of the night and seven of them were killed and three were captured. And that happened in May of 2007. And the rest of that deployment the mission completely shifted. Everything stopped. The whole mission for the rest of that deployment was trying to find those missing guys. And we had resources brought in from everywhere to help us. And what it looked like for us was going out for four or five day patrols at a time up and down, you know, the Karguli, Kargu through Karguli village along the river and just going house to house and searching those houses, looking for any signs that Americans had been there, checking their weapons, everything. Which, you know, if somebody comes to my door and says, hey, there's somebody missing, I'm coming in and I'm ripping your house apart and looking for them, I'm going to be like, the hell you are. Unless you're the police and you have a search warrant, then fine, come on. But, yeah, so... But they they didn't look at it that way. They were welcoming. And, you know, we also, when we would stay out for four or five nights, now this is the conventional army, so we didn't have 
all the resources. We would take helicopters into the village. The helicopters would drop us off and we wouldn't see them again until four days later. So we were just at the end of the day, as the sun's going down, we would find a house that was in a tactical advantage point for us. And we'd basically show up and be like, Hey, you guys got to leave. We're sleeping here tonight. Again, not a great way to build rapport with people. However, they accepted it and they would open their doors. They would go sleep at their neighbors. They would pull out every mattress, blanket, any sort of cushion, whatever, to make the ground comfortable for us. The wives would go and cook us bread and slice vegetables and slaughter a, a goat and cook that up so that we, they would feed us. They would make tea for us. It was never like, you know, I wouldn't have blamed some of them if we showed up and they were just like, man, Americans suck. Americans are assholes, but they, they weren't. Um, they were like, okay, thank you for coming to our country and helping us. Cause these are the, the part of the population that is not, at, we're not at war with. These are the ones that are getting killed by the extremists and they were grateful that we were there. And so they're like, yeah, you stay here tonight. And they would come back in the morning and make us tea and bread before we would leave. And so that was really awesome. In Afghanistan, the same way, you know, every, every meeting you would go to in town, you would leave with like a backpack full of melons because everybody that comes to that meeting would bring you a melon from their garden. as like a gift. And yeah, I remember we would get on the helicopter and be like, what are we going to do with these 15 watermelons? <laughs> and we would just end up throwing them out the helicopter and watching them explode on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate the, uh, the, perspective though because i think it's so important and i want to get to you know some of the the other sides of the conflict as we get deeper into the story but you know as i said such a two-dimensional um kind of biased divided uh perspective of these conflicts when the nuances that you hear from the men and women that were actually there are so important there were there were absolute atrocities by some members of these countries and some of the most courageous heroic kindness and compassion from some of the others so it's so important for us to hear these yeah absolutely absolutely so you're with the regular army what made you decide to go the sf route and then kind of walk me through you know your experience as far as a selection process and then training beyond that so 2007 that deployment we had those guys captured um once that happened we had some special forces teams come out and assist us with searching the areas to try to recover them. And that was my first exposure working with Green Berets. And I just remember seeing they were professional, but they also didn't stress out about the bullshit. The, is it okay to say you can you can you? say whatever you want? Just while we've paused for a okay. second as well, did they ever recover the three soldiers? I, mean, I should have asked you that before. So one was recovered before the end of our deployment, and then two of them, Jimenez and Fowdy, were both missing for a little bit over a year. It was May twelfth, two thousand seven, when they were captured, and it was July two thousand eight when their bodies were recovered. 
Yeah. So, um, and there's been a couple books written about it. I've got one somewhere here in my, my library, none left behind. So if you want to read about that, that 10th mountain deployment, that whole book was based on my battalion in Iraq in 2006, 2007. Um, so yeah, I saw those guys. I liked how they conducted business. I liked that they didn't worry about the unimportant rules. They were still disciplined, but they had proven themselves. They didn't need to show discipline by not putting their hands in their pocket or by shaving every morning or, you know, calling each other sir or sergeant. They like it was big boy rules because they earned it and I respected that and I wanted to have that. So that was my first, that was when like the first little nugget got dropped in my head that maybe I want to look into this. And I came back from that deployment and PCS to Germany. So I moved at the time I was stationed in New York. I moved from New York to Germany and I was a staff sergeant at the time and I got DA selected for a special duty and it wasn't a fun one. Um, this was at the time when we had units called the warrior transition battalions, which was great in theory. It was originally designed for wounded soldiers to go to, to recover. So if, whether it was because they, you know, had, got diagnosed with cancer or they were blown up or they were shot. It was a unit so that they didn't hold a spot in a deployable unit that couldn't, that was filled with an undeployable soldier. They put them in the warrior transition battalion. They could then focus on their medical treatment. And then the military would decide if they're going to transition them back into a fighting unit or if they're going to transition them out of the army. So, it was great in theory, but what it turned into was a dumping ground for unit command to send any soldier that wasn't meeting their standards. So you got a lot of subpar soldiers in there. Um, a lot of malingers, people that maybe because they didn't want to deploy, so they faked like they had this injury or... Um, yeah, it it wasn't executed properly. So I was cadre over there. So I was in charge of a group of soldiers that are working through medical issues. And it was an absolutely exhausting job. And so during that time, however, it's, it's a nine to five Monday through Friday job. So I had a lot of freedom outside of work to train and that sort of thing. So my first sergeant and I had committed to doing this road march called Nijmegen over in Europe. It's 100 miles, I believe, is what it was. And we were training every Saturday for that. And we were getting into, you know, doing 30, 40 mile movements every weekend. And I realized I really like this. I love, you know, it sounds weird, but I loved rough marching um, because I'd put my music in and I'd zone out. And I would, yeah, it, it 
just came pretty naturally to me. I think that was the first, when I really started to realize my physical potential, because at that phase of my life, this is the first time that I had really gotten disciplined with my diet, my training. Mentally, I was in a good place. And so things just started to line up. And I was like, you know what? I'm actually a pretty fit dude. And like, you know, I was always, I, I, I always met, or exceeded the standards of what was needed from me, but I, I had never pushed the limits really. And so during that time I was just bored. So I just really started focusing on those things and I started getting in really good shape. And so I read an article one day in the army times about a third group team that was just in this crazy firefight and there were multiple silver star winners out of it. And I set the paper down and I looked at my wife and I was like, I'm going to go try out for special forces. And it was, the decision was that simple. I wanted, you know, the position that I had in this warrior transition battalion, I wasn't able to make an impact. Um, Most of the guys there, you can't make an impact because they don't want you to. They just, didn't want to do they just didn't want to do the army anymore and so they went there hoping that the army would eventually just spit them out with some sort of a disability check and they'd go on their way so you can't really impact people with that mindset so yeah i i just started focusing on my training i would walk to work every day which from my house to the front gate was three miles. But if I went out, so I would do that three miles to work every day. Then I'd go to the gym for two hours and work out, work my regular work day. And then after I was done, I would walk out the back gate to my house, which was nine miles. And I would do that three days a week, one week, and then two days. I'd do like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, one week and then Tuesday, Thursday, the alternate week. And so I was getting, you know, three times a week, 12 miles of rucking in, working out two hours every day, Um, was also training for a marathon at that time. So yeah, when I went again, I wanted to go to selection and I wanted to be confident that I had already put myself through what I would experience there. Other than, you know, the, the stress factors of, this job that I'm trying out for is on the line. So now that was your your physical preparation. Almost everyone I've asked in the special operations or special forces community, the answer is, you know, what what does the the perfect candidate look like? And the answer is always it's not what they look like, it's their mindset. And obviously a combination of that and the preparation. What was it mentally that allowed you to succeed through selection when so many other people metaphorically rang the bell? I went in, so I was a forward observer in the regular army and was always attached to infantry units. So I had some infantry tactic background, but I didn't have, you know, a lot of the guys that when I went to selection were coming from Ranger Battalion or things like that. I went in like a sponge. I identified very quickly who was really knowledgeable, who was well-respected. And 
I just soaked up every little nugget that I could from them. And then in addition, prior to going to selection, I read anything and everything that I could get my hands on. I don't know how many special forces selection prep books I read, how many, you know, Dalton Fury novels I read, just trying to understand what that person, what, what an operator thinks like and what their mindset is like. And I think that was another thing that led to my success was some of the stuff I was reading was purely based on the mindset that was necessary to get through. And one of the things that still to this day, I remember reading in one of those books that I used a lot while I was in selection was this analogy of think about when you're, you're 70 years old and you're sitting on your front porch with your grandkids and they're like, what was your life like, grandpa? What do you want to tell them? And this was something that I really wanted to be able to say was a part of my life. I had, I had made this my purpose. I had committed to this purpose of becoming a Green Beret. And so at that point, once that's burned in my head, it was get selected or die, basically. Um, because I also, I was a bit... Uh, I was very prideful at this point in my life and the idea of returning back to my wife and saying, I didn't make it wasn't, that wasn't palatable for me. So those are two things that, you know, soaking up knowledge from others that have had more experience or more, you know, different experience than I, and just having that right mindset the whole time. Now you talked about the transition program with probably some of the the worst in the military in the uniform. Um, what was the difference between the unit that you were assigned to? I mean, your your regular unit and that, as you said, the the big boy rules group that you found yourself amongst. The difference between conventional army and special forces. Yeah, well, the actual individuals within it. So, for example, in the fire service, I have the the kind of philosophy that all of us should be thinking like special operations because lives are at stake on the EMS side, on the fire side. And, you know, no one, no one is going to want someone who settles at a lower level when their child is needing to be saved. So a lot of people that come on here have said, hey, you know, we're SEALs, whatever we are. We hold police and fire to the same level as us. With you, you know, no, no, um, uh, disrespect to regular army but when you have a kind of a, a hierarchy and you can you can have a higher skill set and a higher you know op tempo and all these things that come along with it i would assume that maybe there was a, a different type of individual that you found yourself amongst once you reached that level yeah definitely you know so we mentioned big boy rules and it was big boy rules because and the reason that I had those in 7th Special Forces Group versus the regular Army is because the average individual in the regular Army isn't mature enough to handle big boy rules. And so with, once I made it over to my unit in Special Operations, it was 
reassuring. I knew that the guys to my left and right cared more about making sure I got home than they did themselves and vice versa. I cared more about making sure they got home than I did myself because if I die, that's it. The lights go out. I don't know what comes after that. Maybe the lights don't go out. Maybe I wake up somewhere else as a a reindeer. I don't know. But, (laughs) but if they die and I live, I have to live with that. And that's something that I, I don't want to live with. And, and that was the mentality. And, you know, when you work in a 12 man group versus a, you know, 75 person company, you're in a 12 man ODA with SF or 75 guys in an infantry company. It's a lot tighter knit community on the SF side of the house. We all know each other's families. We all know each other's kids. We go to each other's kids' birthday parties. And you develop a you developed a respect for them that I never experienced in the regular army. You know, I had my friends and obviously I wanted them, you know, I wanted all of us to go home. But it's just it's hard to explain to someone that wasn't there. Like my experience with the regular army, I think a lot of people have that mentality of like, it won't happen to me. So they're not, they're not putting out like their life depends on it. But in SF, there's a lot greater stakes. And, you know, and aside from wanting to take care of each other, the big picture is always on the table and you know, your team's piece is a key piece to that big picture. If, if one team fails, the mission of the whole battalion might fail and nobody wants to have that on them. So, you know, greater, greater risk, greater rewards. And that's why the big boy rules worked in SF. And if, you know, if you gave the regular army, the freedom that we had, they would have hung themselves because there's just not a maturity level. There's not a respect level that is equivalent to the special operations side of the house, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, and that's why, again, I, I love that that philosophy. And it wasn't something I didn't go into this podcast going, well, I'm going to tell all these special operations guys how I feel like I'm the same level as them. It was the reverse. After a while, I kept hearing the same thing. We hold police and fire to this level because we're protecting your families when you're overseas. That's what people forget. Mm-hmm. But as you said, that ownership level, I wanted to be a paramedic because that was the highest level on the EMS side. I never joined a special operations team because ironically, their op tempo is actually lower. They tend to be in a quieter station because they're doing a lot of training and it's great, but I wanted to be you know, up to my elbows and shit in the nastiest places in town. <laughs> but I had all my classes. I had pretty much all my tech classes, so I would be an asset on that fire ground as well. But as you underlined, any firefighter, any police officer, any paramedic, EMT, um, or even dispatcher can at any moment be put in a place where someone else's life is truly in their hands. And if you don't understand that from day one of your career till the day you retire and beyond in your community then, then I would argue that your mentality is not the right one that should be in charge of the community's safety. Yeah, 100%. I mean, 
I was a combo guy on the team. So I was an 18 Echo. So anything that has batteries or an antenna, I was in charge of pretty much. And I knew, like, worst case scenario is we get into a firefight and something's messed up on the radio. We're just out there flapping. We're on our own. And so that was that was my number one responsibility. You know, and look, you know, I, I do all that work before we leave base. I make sure all the radios are working, but stuff happens all the time. A radio can get shot. A radio, you know, batteries can die. You got to make sure you have extra batteries. And you have all your contingency plans for if one communication system goes down, you have another one. But I mean, if I didn't prep and plan and execute my communications plan for my team properly, it's very likely that we could be out there and we could be absolutely cut off from anything and everything in our support network because I failed to do my job. And and that was something that I carried with me throughout because, you know, radios aren't the most exciting thing. I always wanted to be an 18 Bravo and just do the, do guns, you know, and, and be really good with guns. And so being an 18 echo wasn't my first choice. It was what the army told me I could do if I wanted to be a green beret. And I made sure that I knew the importance of that job all the way through so that even when I'm upset that I have to go fill every guy on the radios or every guy on the team's radio on whatever, you know, every, we, we switch our channels and, and our, our crypto every so often. And when that happens, not everybody knows how to do that. So usually the easiest way is for me to just collect everybody's individual radio and go one by one and do it and then radio check, make sure everybody's is working. And a lot of times that would have to be done at like one o'clock in the morning, no matter how disgruntled or frustrated I got that I have to be the one to do this. I knew the importance of that job. And I knew that if I failed at that job, it could have dire consequences. I think if you look at a lot of the tragedies in certainly in the first responder profession, 9-11 is a perfect example. Communication is the the big breakdown. I think Grenfell Fire as well was another one. You know, we're in these buildings, all of a sudden the radios don't work. So the irony is they're probably the least flashy, heroic looking job on the fire ground is being on the right channel, making sure you got the batteries, as you said. But, you know, when all hell breaks loose, what is the one thing that you want? You want to be able to use that radio. Yeah. Yeah. Because without it, no one's coming to save you. Absolutely. Well, one more area I want to touch on before we get to kind of the, the, the kind of health journey that you found yourself on. One of the things that I learned by interviewing you and your brothers and in particular is that the Green Beret specifically is a very diplomatic role as well. You're the force multiplier of the military and you're, you know, you're interacting with a lot of these different groups in these countries where you're going to, you're training up their own, you know, forces. You come from the you know the regular army, and again, what what was you don't have to be specific, but what was the kind of philosophy, the training to the interpersonal relationship, this the the human, the soft skills, however you want to describe it. So you have the you know the the technical radio, you have the weapon systems, etc. What was the how were they able to train you guys to be great diplomats within these countries? Ooh, that's a, 
That's a, I'm, I, I, I might have to give this some thought for a minute. Um, I think part of it is that's part of why they have the selection process is, you know, selection is one to see how much you can physically endure, but also how much you can mentally endure. And then it's designed for everybody to fail at some point. Everybody's going to get exhausted and their body's going to quit on them. And I think what they're really looking for is how do you compose yourself when you're in that situation? And so they, and and then they get to hand select who they allow to come continue training to potentially be a part of their regiment. And so part of that's on them. They're looking, you know, we take multiple personality tests, everything like that. And then throughout the Q course, they, they do different, different types of classes. And it's kind of like, career day if you will so they would set they, they'll have like a guest speaker come in and it's like everybody's going to show up in business casual and they give you little to no guidance but then if you show up in jeans and a polo shirt they are going to call you out in front of everybody and send you home to go change because you don't understand what business you didn't read the room you do you, you know and so you over time you learn those skills. You learn how to read the room, which is a big part of building rapport with people. And so I think it just slowly through just submersive training, it it kind of rubs off on you. The you you mentioned the force multiplier piece of the special forces mission, and that was one of their missions that I was most drawn to. And I've realized multiple times throughout my career, I love teaching. And it's, it's because I get joy from facilitating that light turning on in someone's head and, you know, identifying where the breakdown is. If, if I'm trying to teach something and somebody's just not understanding it, I can't just feed them the same information over and over and over and expect them to eventually understand it. I've got to adjust my approach and it, it it's like problem solving with people. And I always really enjoyed figuring that out. And then once you do solve that problem and you see the light switch on and that soldier or, you know, somebody from the partner force that you're working with, all of a sudden they get it, it's, it, it feels good that you facilitated making that happen. And so I think a lot of those soft skills, if you will, are things that they're looking for in the early phases in selection in the beginning phases of the Q course, they're looking to see if you already possess that to an extent. Because if you don't, you can be a huge detriment. You can go into a village, and if you've got some guy that has no clue how to conduct himself, he could burn all the rapport for your whole team, and you might get run out of the town that night. So, yeah, I I think I, I had enough um, sense about me to 
get in there. And then it was just a matter of identifying once again, who are the right guys to surround myself with? Who do I want to choose to be my mentor and, and making sure I choose the right person for those, those roles. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. I didn't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you've, you know, you've kind of walked us through being a little aimless when you were young, finding the military, finding yourself in this elite position. Talk to me about the medical event that you you had, and then kind of walk me through that journey out of the military. So, two thousand thirteen, back in Afghanistan. And we were wrapping up the end of our deployment. I think we had about a month left and we were out on a five day mission, parked the trucks at the end of the day in on a hill overlooking the village that we were going to be moving into the next day. And we were just going to sleep outside in our trucks. And so we get the trucks positioned, everybody's setting up their their sleeping bags you know it's dark at this point i made we had a bunch of not a bunch but we had a, a number of regular army guys that would come and we'd leave them sitting in the vehicles as we went and did work in in town but then they could move the vehicles as we progressed through the village so we had a number of regular army guys with us plus our 12-man oda i made the guard roster for all the conventional guys, hey, this is your shift tonight. You're going to be up at this time. You're going to be up at this time. Anybody have any questions? No. Okay. My job's done for the night. I'm going to get ready for bed. So I needed to climb up on top of, we had these tall trucks. They're called RG33s. And my rucksack was strapped to the top of the truck. And there's a ladder that goes up. So... I needed to get up to the top of the truck, grab a clean t-shirt and socks, toothbrush. And I was going to, you know, change my socks and brush my teeth and climb in for the night. That's the last thing I remember was having that thought. I need to climb on this truck. The next thing I know, I woke up and my team was all around me. I already had an IV in my arm. My head was killing me and I had no clue what happened, what day it was, what time it was, where I was. And they told me, my medic told me, Hey, we found you on the side of the truck having a seizure. And so there's still to this day, we don't know how, if I have my own theories um, because of how those trucks are positioned and how, what my, where my head hurt. I don't know, maybe from this seizure, I just immediately had a migraine afterwards, but I also had like a huge bruise and a gash on my head. So I think I either hit it on something as I was climbing up that truck and fell off the truck, or I got on top of the truck and fell off the truck. But regardless, my head was killing me. I had an IV in and they found me, I guess I was seizing for around five minutes or so. And initially... Nobody, so no one saw me until I was already seizing. And the way they realized it was we had a bomb dog with us and the bomb dog actually alerted everybody. He started barking at me and a good buddy of mine on the team turned around and he said, is Zach okay? 
And another friend, I was known, I played a lot of jokes and was always pretty lighthearted. So another guy on the team was like, he's fucking with the dog. (laughs) And they just left me. And then after a couple minutes, my medic comes back over and he realized my wrists were turned in and, or turned out, whichever one it was, I think turned in. And my eyes were rolled back in my head and I was turning purple. And he was like, Zach's not smart enough to fake a seizure this well. (laughs) So he realized immediately, hey, something's going on. So they called a medevac and that was a whole nother shit show. The, we marked the landing site of where we wanted the helicopter to land. And I was roughly a hundred meters away from that. And so once they landed, they were going to take me over to the helicopter. I was already on the stretcher and everything, but the helicopter decided to ignore the markings we had and they tried to land on me. Really? And yeah, so we had all, we had three trucks and they were in a triangle formation facing out. They decided to try to land in the middle of all three trucks and which is where I was. And so of course it browned out. They couldn't see anything. So they took back off, circled around, got on the radio, tried it a second time. I looked at my medic and I said, I'm not going on that helicopter. (laughs) And finally they landed where we marked the landing site and they get me on there. They got me, they medevaced me to Kandahar And at that point, as soon as I got to Kandahar, I got into the hospital and our docs from our battalion came in. These are also special forces qualified medical personnel. They came in and kicked everybody else out of the room. And they're like, hey, we are not going to say that you had a seizure. You've been out there for four days. You're probably tired, possibly dehydrated. We're going to chalk this up to being that. And because if we report it as a seizure, it's a career ender for you. And at the time, I was okay with that. So because I was, you know, still fairly fresh in my career. I had been in SF for, for like two and a half years, three years. And so... And I already had my next assignment within seventh group lined up and was really looking forward to going in and performing those duties. So I told him, I said, okay. And I went through the rest of that deployment without another seizure. And then I got home and a couple of weeks after I got home, I had a second one and then I had a third one. And so at this point, we needed to figure this out. I talked to the same docs that were with us there in Afghanistan. They were back in Florida with me. And I told them, I said, Hey, this is still happening. We should probably check it out. And so they scheduled me with a neurologist. They did a EEG. And the same day that I had the EEG, I thought I was just going to go in. They were going to do this brain scan. And, you know, a week or two later, they'll tell me the results. And I really didn't think they would find anything. Nobody in my family had a history of epilepsy. So it would be rare that I would all of a sudden come up with this. And, but that same day I did the EEG, 
They put me back in the doctor's office. They did like a four hour brain study, put me back in the doctor's office. And he came in and he said, Hey, you have epilepsy. Your brain is having many seizures while you were in that room. Like throughout the day, you're, you're having these micro seizures. You're not losing consciousness, but your brain is having constant seizure activity throughout the day. So they told me my options at that point were, Hey, we can start a med board now, or if you want to wait, we can start you on some anti-epileptic medicine. And if we can get your seizures under control for two years, you can go back to a team and deploy again. Meanwhile, I would be stuck at a desk job. So I initially said, okay, let's see what happens. And we started pharmaceutical regimen number one, and it didn't work. So then we tried a different anti-epileptic that didn't work. Tried another one. It slowed things down, but it didn't cure all. So then they added a second anti-epileptic to it. And at this point, every time that I had a seizure, that two-year clock restarts. And so I eventually just got to the point where I didn't know how long it was going to be or if I would ever be able to go back and do the same job that I was doing. And that was a hard pill to swallow. And so rather than sitting at a desk and supporting where my head was at the time was if I can't do it all, I don't want to do it at all. In hindsight, there are parts of me that wish I would have stayed and still supported the guys and supported that mission longer. But my headspace at the time, I was ready to just figure out what the next chapter of life looks like and start progressing towards that. So I told him, I said, Hey, let's start the med board and I won't fight it and I'll get out. So I got out of the military in November of 2014. Didn't have, I had a plan, but it wasn't a big picture plan. It was more of like a intermediate, just something to fill some time while I figured out what the next big move was. And I moved to Minnesota and I came up with this idea. Well, I should actually say first. So during this time, as I was going through the med board and moving to Minnesota, I struggled with the pharmaceutical medication. And the way that I struggled with it was the anti-epileptic medicine that I was on is called Keppra. And it has known psychotic side effects. So the way that manifested in me was it made me really angry and really irritable at the world. And to the point, if you cut me off in traffic and I honk my horn and you decide you want to flick me off, that means I'm following you to your house and we're going to fight. And which wasn't my personality to snap like that. You know, if I needed to, I can be that person, but I, I was always in control and I noticed that I was losing that control. So I went back to the neurologist and I said, Hey, 
this isn't working because I did my research and I saw that these were documented possible side effects of this medicine. And I said, I really think this is why I'm doing this. Now I look back also, and there was a lot of stuff underneath that still needed to be dealt with that was also contributing to it. But I knew that that medicine wasn't helping. So I said, I don't want to take this anymore. And they said, well, it's stopping your seizures. And now if we take you off of it, your seizure threshold is so low that you're almost definitely going to start having seizures again. So meanwhile, they needed me to go get evaluated for my disability claim by a third-party neurologist. So they send me to an outside the VA neurologist they do a brain scan, they look over my charts, they do their evaluation for the VA. And then when it's done, he closes the folder and he's like, okay, we're done with the VA side of this now, but I want to talk to you about your medicine. And he said, are you still unhappy with it? I said, yeah. I said, I'm going to end up in jail or dead. That's the, that's the course that we're on right now. And he said, I think you should really look at cannabis. And at this time, so this is early 2015. And like I was fresh out of the army. So it was still pretty taboo to me. There was still some stigma behind it. It wasn't as welcome as it it is now. I was worried about what my peers, the, the SF community would think. And I did some research and realized, oh, there's some CBD strains out there that are formulated specifically for seizure disorders, and there's no psychotropic side effects, so I'm going to try it. And I ended up getting um, the CBD oral tincture, and I started taking that, and then I weaned myself off the seizure meds slowly, you know, incrementally cutting the doses down week by week until I was just taking the CBD tincture and I was okay. I was ready to have another seizure if that was the case, but I wanted to try and I didn't, I didn't have any more seizures. So this made me realize because also, so as I was complaining about the side effects of these seizure meds, the answer that the VA gave me was more pills. Oh, you're angry and irritable? Well, here's a bottle of benzodiazepines. Here's a bottle of SSRIs. And then I turned into a zombie and days would go by, but I wouldn't remember what the hell I did. And so I went back to them and I was like, how is this a solution? And they're like, oh, you're tired. Here's some amphetamines that you can take during the day to stay awake and then just take the benzos at nighttime to fall asleep. And I was just going through life as a zombie. And I was like, this is no way to live. I was able to, once I got off the seizure meds, I didn't need any of the other medication anymore. And so I wanted... I wanted to raise some awareness around this because a lot of people get out and they don't go for a second opinion. They go to the VA because it's the free health care that's given to us and they just do whatever they say or they do nothing at all. Those are usually the two, two courses of action. And so I wanted to raise some awareness around a third course of action and that was non-traditional and natural medicine. So I reached out 
to a nonprofit that had helped me and my wife when we were moving to Minnesota. They, because I was getting out under medical terms, they reached out and they facilitated after we moved out of our house in Florida while we were waiting to move into our house in Minnesota. This veterans nonprofit put us up in a hotel so that we didn't have to pay for it out of pocket and have that extra cost. And their name's Task Force Dagger, great organization. So they supported me. So I wanted to do something for them. So I came up with this idea. I want to ride a bicycle across the country and have fundraisers along the way and go through every active duty special forces base across the country and talk to them about this third option. And they accepted it. They were like, yeah, you can do this under our flag. And they helped cover the cost of the trip. And then everything that I raised just went to their nonprofit. And it was, it was cool. We had some really awesome events all over the country. We were, you know, we had people, we had a gun company that donated guns that we had raffles and all that money went to task force dagger. And then that money was used for non-pharmaceutical TBI treatments. So it just fit that mold. And you want to talk about, you were asking about Iraq and Afghanistan about seeing the good side of people over there. That trip across the United States restored all my faith in humanity that I lost in war because it one. I got to see the entire country, the most beautiful parts of the country go in 10 to 18 miles an hour over the course of three months, riding through the Rocky mountains, the Appalachian mountains, the coastlines. It was one, an amazing experience to see the USA in that way. And because as a child, we, we took family vacations, but like I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, we would go to like Tennessee or South Carolina, Florida a couple times. We didn't, I, I had never been out West. I'd never seen the Rocky mountains. And the first time I got to see them was from a bicycle as I was riding up and down them. And that was healing in itself because you get around some of that vast wilderness and I'd be at the top of some mountain and just looking down at everything out there. And it just made all my problems feel so small. So that was healing. Seeing the country was beautiful. It gave me a new respect for the work that for, for the service I did for that country. It was like, this is why I did it is because I have the privilege of living in this beautiful place and then the people came, you know, same thing. People just opened their doors to us. We would usually, we would ride into a town and, at, you know, I would do between 80 and 120 miles a day. And we'd ride into a town and at the end of the day, the first place I would find the nearest brewery if they had one. If they didn't have a brewery, then the nearest bar because I'd want a beer to, to rehydrate. And we would go to the bar in some of these towns out West. It's like the, the wild West still like very small, like 
everyone knows everyone. And here I am riding on a bicycle in spandex, walking into the bar, asking for a beer. And it's like music stops and everybody's head turns. <laughs> and they're like, what are you doing? And once, you know, we had, it became a pretty big production. Um, I had a support vehicle. So we got so much media coverage and invites to do interviews and everything that we ended up having to uh, initially the original plan was I was going to carry everything on my bicycle with me. But then all these events started popping up that people wanted to do to support it. So I had to bring a lot more stuff. So we ended up having a support vehicle follow along and that vehicle was had a custom wrap with all of our logos and all of our sponsors and everything. And then I had extra bikes in there. And so this huge truck would pull up that said Green Beret Adventure Team and had a big Viking helmet with the beard was shaped as the United States of America. So it was a pretty cool logo. I'm pretty proud. My friend Adam designed it and he did an awesome job. So we would pull up in this truck and I'd get out in spandex and people would want to know, like, what are you guys doing? And we would tell them we're riding across America to raise awareness for non-traditional and non-pharmaceutical brain injury research and treatments. And then they're like, oh, were you a Green Beret? Because it said Green Beret Adventure Team on the truck. And I, yes, I was. And then they want to thank you for your service. And before you knew it, they're just like, well, you know, I love camping. So I was completely fine camping the whole way. But people were like, no, you just you you just rode 100 miles to get here and you're going to get on your bike and ride 100 miles tomorrow. No, let me buy you a hotel room or let me buy you an Airbnb. And, you know, one dude gave us his whole mansion for a night like yeah, and it was it was in the middle of Montana. It's actually in the same town where the show Yellowstone, if you're familiar, yes. is taped. So that's not actually taking place in Yellowstone. It's in Darby, Montana. And we stopped at this brewery in Darby, Montana, and this guy said, hey, I've got a hunting shack you guys can stay at tonight. At least you'll be, you know, under a roof. And I was like, sweet, man. Thank you. And he's like, follow me. I'll show you guys where it is. And then you can come back to the bar. It wasn't a hunting shack. <laughs> it was a, a mansion on a river, mountains on both sides, down in this valley. And there was even a furnished teepee down by the river that one of us could sleep in. Huge wraparound patio with a hot tub. There was this awesome meteor shower. So me and my friend Adam had this romantic evening <laughs> sitting in the hot tub watching the meteor shower together. Um, but it was just things like that. And then people would just buy us meals. And it was like it restored a lot of faith in humanity. You know, I think I had started to get a little bit jaded after, you know, multiple combat rotations and I think I was still angry that my plan to be a Green Beret didn't work out the way I expected it to. But that changed it. Um, I started to to really feel gratitude in my life again. And, 
Yeah. So we made it down to Florida. We started in Northwest Washington and made it down to Florida, finished at seven special forces group, my home group. I was invited to come on base and speak to the soldiers in the battalion that I came from. And that was a really cool opportunity to reconnect with them. And some of those guys that were my mentors when I was coming up were all there and they were all telling me how proud they are that what I'm doing for the regiment is really needed and appreciated. And it was, it was a really gratifying experience. Now, where so, about, whereabouts in Florida was that that you ended? So Crestview, Florida is where seventh group is. And that is in between, it's just North of Destin, Florida. So in between Pensacola and Panama City in the Panhandle. Beautiful. Well, you talked about the the pharmaceutical versus the holistic route that you took for your own seizures. And it's funny because before you even said the word, as a paramedic, the number of people that I've had, there was one uh, that we had, Amy, that she would seize over and over and over again. And some people would accuse it of, um, uh, what's the term they used? Um Oh my God, I've forgotten the, the term now. Basically a fake seizure. I'm, I'm blanking on the, the medical term. Um, and, you know, my thing would be, okay, does this person really feel like lying out on hot asphalt in 110 degrees in Florida because they want to, you know, prove a point to the world? But the yeah. same exact term was, was, I feel like a zombie when I'm on my meds. And as a paramedic, I'd be going, well, they're not fucking working. They're clear because I keep mm -hmm. responding to you. And you're on these gamut of, you know, pharmaceuticals. But I remember telling her right before I transitioned out of the fire service, hey, you know, I've been hearing a lot about THC, about marijuana and how it seems to be helping seizure patients. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that she ended up going down that route. Um, but I had a, a doctor on, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, who worked a lot with pediatric seizure patients and had incredible mm -hmm. success. And as you said, with the psychotropic effect... What she was saying is if you actually take marijuana, not not even hemp, but marijuana, but you blend it, you don't dry it, then you can get use the full plant. You will have this strong dose of THC, but it's non-psychotropic, but it does have the therapeutic effect. And I myself swear by mm -hmm. CBD. So it's so powerful for people to listen because it will be one thing if your seizure meds worked, but there was a side effect, but they do stop me. But it's as a paramedic, like I said, when you see a drug that doesn't work and has these horrible side effects, sometimes you kind of need to grab someone by the lapels, drag them out of some of this modern medicine and say, look, this isn't working, but here is what seems to be working to a lot of people. Why not try this? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And eventually it got to the point where I even, so I ended up, so after that bike ride, I became a endurance coach for cyclists and the bulk of my clients were triathletes. I had been a cyclist. I had been a competitive cyclist. I had never been a triathlete and I wanted to understand psychologically where their heads were because I can coach you on cycling, but it's a very different approach based on if you're just cycling or if you just got done swimming and now you have to run also. So I rescued that dog from my raft. So really? He, he's a veteran. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> An Iraqi veteran nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um so 
I wanted to understand psychologically, where's your head at by the time you get on the bike and knowing that you just swam three miles, you rode 114 miles, and now you have to go run a marathon. So I needed to experience that. So I started doing triathlons and I was doing a half Ironman in 2016 up in Minnesota and ended up becoming good friends with the windshield of a car in a fraction of a second and woke up in the ambulance. And that started kind of my second life, I think. (laughs) So yeah, it was honestly, it was, it was negligence. The, the inner, it was raining really bad out safety measures that should have been in place weren't in place and i ended up coming through the intersection there was nobody controlling the intersection which we were told there was and uh the the light turned and a car came it was so wet out that if i had tried to break i probably would have slid under the car so i made the split second decision to just rotate my body knowing that I was going to hit the side of this car and then could hopefully roll over it. But when I went over the handlebars, I, the windshield shot me just straight up in the air. And I remember bouncing off the windshield and thinking that wasn't that bad. And so after about the fifth or sixth time seeing the sky, I realized I was still cartwheeling through the air And that when I did finally make contact with the ground, it was probably going to hurt. And so I just told myself, go limp, go limp. And then I met the ground face first and my back scorpioned and lights out, woke up when I was already on the backboard and the stretcher getting loaded into the ambulance and didn't really remember what had happened initially um i remember they asked if they could call i didn't have my cell phone or anything with me obviously so they're like hey we need to notify whoever to let them know where we're taking you and so i told them to call my wife who she was with my daughter just like 15 miles back on the course they were at one of the turns cheering me on so i had just passed them you know, 30, 45 minutes ago. And I, they're like, okay, what's her number? And for whatever reason, the number that popped in my head was my ex-wife's phone number. (laughs) Oof. So (laughs) I don't know if she answered or not. I remember they called and then I realized I was like, wait, that's not her phone number. And then I gave them my wife's real phone number. And yeah. I've never made that mistake before. So I think that was just part of being confused from the concussion, but yeah, I, I ended up getting to the hospital and the main concerns were my lower back and my concussion. I had fractured my eye socket. This portion of my, my head was sliced open. So they're stitching that up. They're doing all their scans and screens they, you know, giving me a lot of narcotics to keep me comfortable. And I kept telling them, 
once they realized my pelvis, my femurs, everything was okay, I had a small fracture in my L5, but my right glute and all the way down, like my IT band was extreme, like a ton of pressure. It felt like, like, I, like it was in a vice grip and it was about to pop. And I kept telling them, I'm like, Hey, something doesn't feel right back here. And they were just like, we'll give you some more narcotics and try to get you comfortable. And at this point they knew they were admitting me in the hospital. We were just waiting for a bed to free up on, on the regular floor. So I'm just hanging out in the ER and I kept every, you know, 30, 45 minutes, they'd come in. How are you feeling now? And I was like, it's worse. Okay, here's more narcotics. 30, 45 minutes later, it's worse. Here's more narcotics. So finally, I get up to my room and the owner of the gym that I coached at came in and he could tell that, you know, I wasn't in a good place. This was, at this point in my life, this was the most pain I've ever felt. But I wasn't going to say that because my pride wouldn't let me. So when they asked me on a scale of one to 10, how bad is it? I'm like, a seven. (laughs) And so my buddy Danny pulls the doctor out in the hallway and he's like, look, this guy has a different pain scale. Like, unless he's dead, he's not going to tell you it was a 10 but you need to probably treat it as if he's telling you it's a 10. And so the doctor came in and they said, Hey, just to be safe, we're going to go scan you again, just to make sure we didn't miss anything. So they do another CT scan and they compared that to the first one. And they were like, Holy shit, there's a lot of fluid building up in this leg and the fascia didn't burst. So it has nowhere to go. All that fluid is just filling up in the compartment compartment syndrome. So sign these waivers, you're going to surgery, go down. And I woke up eight hours later with a 24 inch incision up my leg and then across my, my lower back and then my butt cheek, just basically hanging wide open with a wound back in. And that stayed in for, for about the next two weeks. And there was some nerve damage to that leg. So, yeah, I was in a wheelchair for, I was in a wheelchair and a walker for about two months and then started physical therapy and started getting, getting moving on my own again. But at this point, I needed a new purpose because, you know, whatever you want to call it, PTSD, you know, different type of PTSD than war. Um, but riding bicycles just stopped being fun at that point, especially on the road. Um, I tried as I got more mobile, I, I could still ride a bike and I tried to get back into it, but every time I would go on a road ride, I was so paranoid that it just cycling was always an outlet for me. It was always a way that I just let some let some stress out and now it was causing me more stress so where were you mentally at that point because you talked about um the the uh the seizure element you know and and the the kepra causing the anger but as you 
kind of alluded to, there was an underlying element of trauma. And, you know, I've talked about this a lot from childhood through to putting the uniform on, through to deployments, through to the transition, which I think is a, a very, very hard thing. You found yourself with the purpose on a bike going across the country. Then you kind of transitioned into the triathlon world. Now you get nailed by a bike. Now your physicality has been taken from you. And as you mentioned, your purpose as well. Did that lend it so did you, did you find yourself struggling mentally alongside the physical rehabilitation i'm sure i was but i hadn't really identified it, it as that at that time and i but i i didn't wait long before i redefined my purpose and maybe that's why it wasn't a huge blow to my psyche it so i i did have a period where i'm rehabbing i'm not sure what my body's capable of but i'm gonna do everything within my power to let this not affect me at all to get back to where i was and so i, I did need a purpose though and i sat down and i journaled and i wrote I just started thinking, when was the last time I was happy with what I was doing, you know, aside from biking? And it went back to, to the team days, but then I took it a step further. And why did that make me happy? And I started looking for at, the, at that list. And are there other jobs that can provide this for me? And I ultimately decided partially because it's the easy thing to do with being a green beret and having that on your resume. There's a lot of opportunities to contract overseas and the money at that time wasn't bad either. And I kind of wanted some financial stability again, because I had been out of work for two to three months while I was recovering. I wanted to be able to provide and chip in for the family again. So, but I didn't want to just go on any contract that would take me. I had, I did my research. I talked to the guys in my network and found out, Hey, this is what I want to do. What companies do I need to apply with to get a position doing that? And they steered me in the right direction. And I started submitting my resume and the main one that I wanted to work on emailed me back in a, a pretty quick, I think the same week and said, Hey, your resume looks great. Will you, do you want to do this? And I said, yes, but we realized that my security clearance had lapsed. So we had to reapply for a security clearance, which at that time was quite the process. Um, I think it ended up taking about a year and a half to get approved. So in the meantime, I went and taught SRT for the Department of Defense, which um, is, is SWAT school. I was never in law enforcement. I actually got in a lot of trouble because I didn't understand all of the ethics behind, you know, we have very different rules in a war zone than police have in America. And I had to learn those because the first time that they let me just, you know, I knew, I knew the tactics. I knew how to clear a room. I knew how to breach a door. I knew how to use explosive charges, all that stuff. I could teach fine, but 
when you set up scenarios and these are cops going through, there's a lot more rules that they have to follow that I didn't necessarily have to follow. You can't just come out going, they're all dead. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or like if they start shooting you from that house, you know, we're going to stop there. I don't want to say anything. (laughs) Yeah. I, I had to, I had to learn how I had to learn the, the ethics and all, all that, all the cop rules. And it was a really cool experience because once again, I was teaching and I loved teaching. I loved teaching and I was teaching something that I really liked to do, which was CQB room clearing. And so that was a cool job. But after a year, I finally got notified that my clearance was good. I was accepted to go through the training pipeline and then start going back overseas. And so that started really, I guess, the third chapter of of my story. And yeah, so I was back in back on on a plane heading over the ocean. So pros and cons, we hear again as a civilian, it's a very kind of, you know, um, mysterious world, the world of contracting. You have this regular army experience, then special forces experience. What for your particular experience in contracting, what were the pros of being in that organization? And what were some of the cons? So pros, um, better living conditions, better chow, nicer gym and more money cons the quality of operator was lower that was really the main one um and the contracting world is it's weird because in a lot of organizations it's a who knows who game as far as career progression goes so if you're in charge and you're getting ready to retire, they're going to ask you who you want to take your spot, and you're going to pick your friend. Over, you know, there wasn't really a process of applying. It was just a good old boys network of once this guy leaves, he picks who's going to replace him, and then when that guy leaves, he picks who's going to replace him. And once I got towards the end of my time as a contractor, that did change. And they did actually start holding application processes um, for positions. But initially, the first company that I worked for, there was none of that. And so you just didn't have you didn't have the best leadership and there was nowhere to really grow. Now, what about rules of engagement? You hear this, and again, I'm talking as, as a civilian, but you hear that you know when you're in the military, obviously you're held to a certain standard you talked about in law enforcement, held to their rules and regs. Um, there's kind of I've heard kind of sound bites of some of the the dangers of contracting that you get a little bit of that cowboy element in some groups that are out there. Have you had any kind of um, perspective on that at all? So not in the time frame that i did it so i started contracting in 2017 now my first appointments to iraq in 2004 were it was it was like the wild west and and they would just i mean they really didn't have rules of engagement and at that point in the war there weren't isr feeds that could 
show what happened when an incident took place. It was just like, I mean, if we had contractors right outside of, of base as they were turning in, if a car followed them too close, they would just shoot the car up. It wasn't like warning shots. It was just like, there was a sign on the back of a truck that said, keep back however many feet, just like you see on the back of fire engines. And if people didn't follow that, then sorry, but your car's getting shot. And so, but we learned a lot from that because it did a lot of damage to how we were looked at by those countries. Um, the fact that we had civilians that were just running wild over there, they definitely implemented a lot more rules. So by the time I was a contractor in 2017, we had just as strict, if not stricter rules of engagement than the military did. So yeah, I, I didn't really experience any of that firsthand other than when I was a soldier and I saw what the contractors were doing out in town. Right. Well, thank you again. Yeah. I mean, these are these are voices that are important, you know, and it's it's interesting, you know, hearing the genesis of that because, you know, as you mentioned, you're there trying to be the diplomat in the special forces, and the danger would be that another group, whatever it is, that's outside of your military, you know, unit, could be undoing the very work that you're trying to to do. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But yeah, as. As a whole, I enjoyed my time as as a contractor. I got to be a part of some really cool stuff, and it, you know, it it gave me that chance. I think I felt when I left seventh group, I felt like I left with some things on the table still, um, some unfinished business. I wasn't done, and it was kind of a, a chance to go feel like I accomplished a little bit more. Um, and I did another four trips as a contractor. So yeah, I know 2020 was a rough year for a lot of people. We had a, a virus sweeping through the planet. People lost loved ones. You know, a lot of people's lives were changed because of the lockdowns and other things. Was the yet another incident that happened to you was that what took you out of contracting and if so if you kind of walk us through you know people would think okay you've been through enough shit well gob is about to throw another <laughs> another pile at you yeah this was um this was a, a a big test and so covid hit i was overseas when it became a thing and we were shutting the borders down and not allowing anyone to come back and so we got word from the states. They said, hey, if you guys want to come back in the next six months, you need to get on the next plane out of there. Otherwise, you might be stuck for the next six months. So we figured out who was going to stay and who was going to leave. The guys that had not been there very long stayed so that way they could get some income. At that point, I had already been there for two or three months, so I was comfortable leaving, letting someone else continue to get a paycheck. So I got on that plane, came back home, and I had gotten – so I'd gotten some tattoo work done while I was home, like right after I got home. And then 
everything shut down in Florida. Like now the borders are closed, but now cities were also like closing all the businesses and, you know, you're supposed to quarantine your house, but there were approved outdoor activities. So me and my wife went kayaking one weekend and this was, I don't know, a week and a half, two weeks after I got that tattoo, it felt fine, but it probably still had some open areas and I didn't think of it. Like I've never had a bacterial infection or any, any issues like that in my life. So I didn't really think much of it. I just wanted to get out of the house and get some sun. And so we're out kayaking. And then it was the following weekend was when I realized something was wrong. And I had been out on my motorcycle, riding around with my friends, having fun all day, went to bed that night. No, signs that anything was wrong and then i woke up around two or three in the morning with my knee cap like it was red it was warm to the touch and it was a little bit swollen but nothing that was like super alarming i took some tylenol i got up i stretched a little bit and went back to sleep and woke up around seven o'clock in the morning and it, it was now a little bit more painful. It definitely felt, it felt like the skin was just real tight. And so I thought maybe I got bit by a spider because I would, you know, when cleaning the garage out or, you know, around the house, you would occasionally find a brown recluse or a black widow. And I was like, maybe something bit me while I was sleeping. I'm going to go to urgent care and get this taken care of. So I went to an urgent care and at the time I was back in, in pretty good shape, you know, even once COVID hit while I was over there, mission really slowed down. And so we had a lot of time to work out and that and eat. And that was really pretty much that and watching Netflix was pretty much all I was doing. So I was in pretty good shape. I was around like 240 pounds at the time. So the doctor comes in, he looks at my knee, they were in, they, they drew some blood, they tested, did something with it. And they came back and they're like, no, nah, everything looks fine. And he was like, I think you just have an overuse injury. You look like you work out a lot. You've probably just strained something. We're going to give you some steroids and that should help it feel better. If it continues to be a problem, then it might be a chronic issue and you should follow up with an orthopedic surgeon. He gave me an orthopedic surgeon to follow up with if necessary. So I trusted him. They pushed some some steroids into me and I headed home. And it honestly got okay for like two days. I was able, it still wasn't comfortable, but it wasn't like controlling me. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just rest, ice, compression, elevation, you know, the old, old rice remedy. And then two days later, I woke up and my, it looked like a knee was growing on top of my knee. And it, at this point, it was so swollen and so painful that I couldn't bend my leg at all. 
So I called the orthopedic doc and he's like, yeah, we have something. Or the, the receptionist was like, we can get you in next week. And I was like, no, this isn't going to wait. And I don't want to go back to that urgent care because they downplayed it last time. So I was like, I really need to get seen today. And so they're like, okay, if you can come in right now, because it was already like three o'clock in the afternoon and they closed at four and I lived 45 minutes away. So they're like, leave right now. We'll see you here. So I came in. As soon as I get in, the doc asked to look at it. I had sweatpants on. I pulled my pants down and he took one look at it and he said, oh, fuck. Those were his (laughs) words, which is not something you want to hear a doctor say. And he said, okay, here's the plan. He said, you're going to drive back to the hospital and I'm going to call them while you're driving there and they're going to admit you. He said that is 100% infected and we need to start you on IV antibiotics tonight and you need to plan to be there for about two weeks and then we can continue IV antibiotic treatments at home after that if it's responding to it. So at that point, I wasn't really worried about it. It was just inconvenient. It was a pain in the ass. But I was like, oh, well. So I called my wife. I said, hey, I have to be admitted into the hospital. Can you meet me there with some clothes? So, yeah, I go to the hospital. I get admitted. They start IV antibiotics that night. Wife comes, hangs out with me. And we so when you have an infection and you have the discolored skin you know this but for those that don't they'll use a sharpie and they'll mark the edges of the discoloration and then the next day they'll look and see if it's expanded outside of that every day the discoloration was growing by two to four inches so it was rapidly it started in my knee and it was rapidly spreading to my ankle and my hip and so it was probably after like six or seven days. I was in there for maybe a week. It was still growing. And they said, okay, this isn't responding to antibiotics. We're going to have to start doing manual washout and debridements. And I didn't know what that meant, but they took me to surgery and they told me they were just making an exploratory incision. So they made like a two inch incision right over my kneecap and then they woke me up. So I was out when they made the incision. I woke up. It was packed and wrapped up. And it was a late night surgery. So the doctor, by the time I came out of anesthesia, the doctor was already gone. They told me he'll talk to you in the morning and tell you what he found. But then I get back to my room and I tried to get dinner because I had to fast before that surgery. So I'm hungry. And the nurse is like, oh, you have surgery again in the morning. You can't eat. And so, but I had no clue why it's going back to surgery. So he comes in the next morning and he's like, Hey, I made an incision into your knee and it looked like somebody opened the dishwasher mid cycle and all the nasty water just came gushing out of, of your leg. And so he said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make a big incision today. It's going to go from mid thigh to mid shin. And I'm going to have my arm all the way inside between the muscle and the skin, just scrubbing out all the, the dead tissue. 
and then we're going to wash it out and then we're going to sprinkle some antibiotic powder in there and try to close it. And then he actually said, we're not going to close it up. We'll put wound backs in. We're probably going to have to do this a couple times. So that was the routine every four days. So I would get prepped for surgery, go in. It would take about four hours. They would use all sorts of medical toothbrushes and their actual hands and just scrape out all the dead tissue. So we did that about eight times over the course of three or four weeks. And then they thought, okay, we think we have it under control enough. We're going to try to pull the wound vax out today and we're going to close it up and we're going to keep you on IV antibiotics and see if now it's under control enough that the IV, IV antibiotics can clear up the rest. So they did. And initially things were going fine. So they actually ended up doing a pick line and setting me up with home health care and discharging me from the hospital after about a month and a half or so in there. And I went home. The home health care had messed up ordering the, so at this point I'm having IV infusions three times a day and it's pertinent that I get these every eight hours and they stressed that. So they're like, we have everything set up. A nurse is going to come to your house after we discharge you and she'll bring all your medication. She's going to show you how to do it yourself. And then she'll check in with you every other day. And on the off days, you'll know how to do this yourself. So I get home and the nurse comes and she's like, well, I don't have any medicine for you. So I call back to the doctor and I'm like, hey, there was a disconnect. There's no meds here. And they're like, well, you just had a whoever I was talking to. It wasn't the doctor. It was one of the nurses. But she said, well, you just had a dose right before you left. You'll be fine. And it'll show up at your house tomorrow. And I was like, okay, you guys are in charge. Well, that wasn't the case um, because overnight the infection started to spread amongst my entire leg all over again. And the next morning, the doctor called to check on me and he said, can you send me, can you email me some pictures just so I can see how it's looking? And I sent him some pictures and he said, you need to come back to the hospital. So I was out of the (laughs) hospital. I was out of the hospital for less than 24 hours and then I was readmitted for about another month. And then over, they started doing the washout and debridements again. And then all of a sudden one day, my pelvis, I woke up one morning and my pelvis, I couldn't stand up all the way and I couldn't move my legs. I mean, I had, like, I could move my legs. I wasn't paralyzed, but the amount of pain to rotate my legs was ridiculous and back to the compartment syndrome at that point the compartment syndrome was the most pain i've ever felt in my life this was now the most pain i've ever felt in my life so this time i did tell the doctor i was like it's a fucking 10 i don't know what to do right now i was i I mean i was crying from this was one of the first times in my life as an adult that i cried from physical pain i've cried from emotional stuff but this was the first time i've cried from physical pain that's how bad it was i couldn't even get from my bed to the bathroom to go to the bathroom 
I couldn't sit up out of bed. And so they took me downstairs. They did some CT scans and they realized that the infection had spread into my bones and it looked like a mouse had just been nibbling away at my pelvis and, and eating it. So that escalated things, but now they have to figure out how did this cross from the muscle into the bones. So they do all sorts of blood tests and they find out, Oh shit, it's in his blood system also, which now the protocol is we have to go and test and look at every single organ to make sure that this hasn't crossed into any of your organs. And they found some vegetation on my aortic valve in my heart. So that definitely kind of lit a new fire under everyone. And at this point, the hospital, the original hospital I was at had transferred me to a higher level of care. That hospital was where it ended up getting into my blood and into my heart and my bones. They said, Hey, you're beyond our care now. And so the VA, so they requested to have me moved and so I did, me and, and my network, my family, my friends, we did the research to find who's got the best infectious disease practice in the U.S. And BAMC, the military hospital in San Antonio, Brooks Army Medical Center, had an awesome infectious disease center. So we called them and we said, hey, will you guys accept me as a patient? Because the VA is just going to try to transfer me to a, some other regional hospital and we're going to get there and they're going to realize that they can't do anything. So we tried to just take care of the hard work and get a doctor to accept me. Then I called the VA and said, hey, I already have a doctor willing to accept my case. I just need you guys to write the referral over there. And it's a military hospital anyways. So you would think it wouldn't be hard for the VA to make that happen. But that wasn't what the VA said. They said, oh, we're sorry, but you've been in the hospital for roughly three months now. And we've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to get this under control. And you're still getting worse. So we're going to send you to a nursing home and keep you comfortable until you pass away. Really? And I was 35 years old. Thank you for your and service. For a, <laughs> <laughs> and for a brief moment, I was like, oh, man, I could have a lot of fun messing with some old people in the nursing home. <laughs> but then the realization that I would probably die in that nursing home sank in. And I was like, no, the hell with that. And they'd be laughing at you then. Not so funny yeah, now, is yeah. it, fucker? <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. So, yeah, so we just turned to social media and we just completely put out there that, Hey, this is what the VA wants to do. Does anybody know where we go from here? And people just started reaching out from all over and saying, you know, contacting their congressmen, senators. I had politicians calling my hospital room throughout the day saying, hey, this is bullshit. I want to take a stand for this. We had news crews at the hospital that were doing it. And then finally, a nonprofit that works specifically with contractors got in touch with me and they said, hey, we have the best trauma team up in Massachusetts and 
we can get you a private jet that will transport you up there. They'll be standing by. You will have every specialist, like the top specialists in every field that you could possibly need at your disposal. Do you want to go up there? And they, and they said, we'll take care of the bill for it. So they flew me up to Massachusetts and I got admitted into Mass General Hospital and pretty much immediately within the first couple nights. So what they did right was they treated it like nobody else had touched me yet. And so they just started checking everything again. They didn't take the other doctor's word. They they started over and started just from head to toe checking every part of my body to see what could be going on. And so the first week was, and they told me this, they said, it's going to be a lot of medical tests. You know, I had MRI scans of the entire body, CT scans of the entire body, x-rays of my entire body, blood work around the clock. Everything was getting, getting checked and double checked. And after two or three days, I was sleeping one night and the nurse comes in. And at this point I hadn't had any lung issues, but the nurse comes in and he says, Hey, your oxygen's dropping. So we're going to go ahead and put some oxygen on you. So they put a nasal cannula in. I go back to sleep about an hour later. He comes in and he says, Hey, this oxygen's still dropping. So we're going to turn it up. And so they turned it up as high as it would go left came back 30 minutes later. Hey, you're still dropping. So they do like the, the heavy flow nasal cannula, like the hardcore one and came back an hour later. And at this point, my SPO two is like 40. Oh my God. And yeah. And so they said, Hey, we're going to move you down to the ICU. And so they're like, we don't know why your lungs are doing this, but it's best that we move you to the ICU. So they moved me to the ICU. They realized the antibiotics that at this point were now treating the infection, they were working, but I was having an allergic reaction to them and developed eosinophilic pneumonia. And so all those eosinophils were just filling up in my lungs. And I don't remember what the number was, but at, so they knocked me out and they sucked all that fluid out of my lungs. And afterwards they were just like, you were basically drowning. And with the amount of fluid that we pulled out of there. So we got that under control. They took me off that antibiotic. We found another one that worked and we started, you know, things started to get better. So they moved me after about, 10 days, they moved me out of the ICU back up to a regular floor. And one morning I got up, I had surgery on my leg the night before, just another washout and debridement. And I had some previous hardware that was put in that they went ahead and took out just in case that was harboring some of the bacteria. So I had that the night before, but it was pretty, pretty routine. Nothing major. Got back to my room, went to sleep. The next morning I woke up and I get, went to stand up out of bed to use the bathroom. And as soon as I stood up, I went blind. And the left side of my body went completely numb. And I got myself back down on the bed, reached around, found the buzzer, called the nurse. The nurse comes in and I was in panic mode. Like 
I immediately was like, is this the, what the rest of my life looks like? Nothing. Is this what's left? And, and I, at this point, my, my headspace was starting to deteriorate because I had been going through this now for five months. I'd been in the hospital for five months. I'd had over 20 surgeries and now I'm blind and the left side of my body is paralyzed. So I started, I remember I just started crying and the nurse is there and, you know, they have no clue what's going on other than what I'm telling them, but she was great. And she sat and she just rubbed my shoulders and she sat on the side of my bed and just calmed me down. And they moved me, they took me downstairs for an MRI. And by the time I got back to my room from that MRI, just in like the five minutes of transport. When I got back, the doctors were waiting in there and they were packing my things up and they're like, Hey, you need to go back to the ICU. And, you know, I still can't see anything. So I'm like, can somebody please tell me what's going on? And they said, you've had two strokes in the last 24 hours and we need to, to go take care of your brain for a little bit. So they moved me to the ICU. They called my wife who she was down in Florida with our daughter at this point, she would do a week in Boston with me and then a week at home with our daughter because our daughter's in school at the time. And my family would fill in while she was up in Boston and help take care of her. So she had just left the day before to go back to Florida. So she had been in Florida for like, I think she had been home for like four hours and she gets a call from the doctor's office and they're like, Hey, you need to come back. And they're like, we don't know how much longer he's going to be around. So you need to get on the first flight back up here. So she flies back up. And at this point, I had the last time I had a seizure was 2015. I had even like more or less forgotten that it was even an issue. And something with those strokes triggered things. And so as she's walking into the hospital, she walks in all of a sudden my leg starts twitching like a muscle spasm at first. And, you know, I've been in a bed for five months. So I was just like, you know, I just got to massage this out, work the muscle a little bit. And this was the side of my body that I can still feel my right leg starts just, and then it starts kind of more than a muscle spasm, more of like a tremor. And then my leg just starts to raise up out of the bed and it starts just kicking violently, but I'm still aware and alert and conscious. And so I'm trying to like force my leg back down and I scream for the nurse because I can't see anything. So I couldn't find the clicker, but I'm starting to panic. And the nurse comes in and he's like, what, what's going on? And I was just like, I'm not doing that. And I point to my leg and my legs just, kicking and he is trying to hold it down and you know also check vitals see what's going on and all of a sudden i just felt this rush come up through my abdomen into my chest and it was just like this fuzzy weird feeling and i don't remember any of the seizures i had before any sort of aura beforehand but something told me in this moment that I was about to have a seizure. I knew it. And I told him, I said, I'm about to have a seizure. And then the lights went out. 
And from my perspective, I then just woke up after the seizure was over. But I asked them, I said, how long have I been out? And they said, it's the next day. And I was like, okay, well, can, can you guys explain to me what happened? They're like, well, you did definitely have a seizure and you wouldn't stop seizing. It went on for around 10 minutes to the point where they were like, if this guy does survive, he's very possibly going to be brain dead. And so they're trying to inject Ativan into my IV to stop the seizure and it took um, like six units of Ativan to finally get me to stop seizing. And then I slept for eight hours and I woke up. And so, like I said, I had more or less forgotten that I had a seizure disorder. So when I did my intake into the hospital, I didn't even think to mention like, oh, five years ago, I was diagnosed with epilepsy, but I don't take anything for it. I haven't had a seizure in five years. So I didn't even remember to tell them that. And so they're like, have you ever had a seizure before? And I was like, I have. And I filled them in on everything. So they do an EEG. And over the next 24 hours, I had 10 more seizures. So, yeah, they started me back on Keppra. I told them I was really hesitant to go back on it. They didn't care. They said it, it worked. We have to right now. It's more important that we just control your seizures. So, yeah, that honestly was the last big event as far as health issues went. So from there, I, over the course of the next two weeks, I regained the ability to use the left side of my body. Vision started to slowly come back. And I spent about another two months up in Boston, but they were able to transition me to outpatient care, but they still wanted me to stay in Boston so that I could continue to have continuity with the same medical team. So they got me an apartment in downtown Boston and I did physical therapy every day. And usually I had three or four other doctor's appointments because at this point I've got a cardiologist, I've got a pulmonologist, I've got a neurologist and an optometrist, everything. And I've got to continuously follow up with these people and make sure that we're staying on the right track. But everything started to get better. And so right before Christmas of 2020, I finally was allowed to leave Boston and went back down to Florida. Amazing. And all this was during the height of COVID as well. Yeah. So which played a whole nother piece of it was so I was in the hospital and the only visitor I could have for a good portion of it was my wife. Like my daughter couldn't even come visit. No friends could come visit. And that puts, you know, that's hard because that's now I'm counting on her for all of my human interaction and it puts a ton of stress on her while she's also trying to you know maintain the house now by herself with a teenage daughter and she's also trying to make sure that i'm not bored and going to a dark place in my head so you know honestly she had it i had endured the physical piece of it 
but I think a lot of but the mental side for her was just as challenging, if not more challenging than what I was dealing with mentally. So yeah, we, we came back to Florida. Everything was looking good, but I was taking that medication again, Kefra, and had the same side effects, except this time I hadn't yet really done the work to figure out what my next purpose was going to be. I, at that point, it was, it was just hundred percent survival mode and I wasn't in a healthy spot and I got real depressed. I felt like I was a burden to my family. I was sick of fighting. I was still really sick. I ended up a month later going back into the hospital for two weeks because due to the strokes, I was put on blood thinners and I had an ulcer in my esophagus that ruptured and it wouldn't clot. And this happened while I was sleeping and I was also still really heavily medicated with narcotics at the time. And so I slept right through it and I just inhaled all this blood all night and then vomited all this blood into the bed. My wife was sleeping in a separate bedroom at the time because it just wasn't comfortable for, and, and my sleep schedule was all messed up. I'm still having to get up and do infusions and so she was in the other room and she came in in the morning because she hadn't seen me and it looked like somebody had been murdered in our bed. The whole bed was just covered in blood and I was face down unconscious still. And she was able to wake me up, took me to the hospital. We had no clue what was going on. And that's when they found out that I had this ulcer that ruptured bled out. I needed blood transfusions. They had to go in and cauterize everything to get it to stop. And so I was still pretty sick at this time. And I finally just, I was done fighting. I mentally was exhausted and I just didn't want to do it. And I didn't want to be a burden to my family. And I made the decision to go out in the woods with the intent of, of not coming back from the woods one night. And, you know, whatever you believe in spiritually you know, I think something intervened and a cop showed up and was like, what are you doing out here? And he was able to put two and two together and realized that I wasn't in a good place. And so he took me to the hospital from a psyche eval. And as soon as I got in there and sat and talked to the doctor, he's looking over my medical chart and he's just like, holy shit, this is all in the last like eight months. And it's like a phone book of paperwork. And he's like, okay, well, let's start with medications you're taking. And I went through the whole, at this point, it was like 17 meds. And as soon as I said Kepra, he closes the folder and he said, how long have you been on? Have you been on that for your entire life? And I said, no, I was on it. And then I had some problems with it. So I stopped taking it, but I just had some seizures in November and they started me back on it. And he said, that's why you feel this way, which I think it definitely contributed, but it wasn't the only thing. But what I did learn from that experience is I went into the psych hospital and I was very clear when I left there, I was only there for like 12 hours. As soon as he realized that he called my wife, they realized like, Hey, he 
he isn't a threat to himself or anyone else. We're going to let him go home, but we're going to get him off this medication. So I was there less than 12 hours. I go home and I knew when I left that place that it was a place I never wanted to go back to. Um, psych hospitals are not made to hospitals in general, aren't made to help you recover. They're not comfortable at all. And so I get out of there and honestly, for the longest time, I didn't tell anybody about that incident. And meanwhile, I had people that I respected, former mentors from my military career, throughout my contracting career, I had people calling me in there just like, Zach, the level of resilience that you have shown through this whole thing is amazing. And you need to share that because people can learn from it. And I didn't want to be a fraud. I didn't want to. So I was like, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe I am resilient, but I've also failed. I've also struggled. I've tried to quit. It just wasn't in the cards for me. And that was really what started me down the road of looking at what is resilience and then analyzing my life and what things, what decisions, what choices, what experiences have contributed to my resilience. And then throughout that, all of a sudden I was like, I need a purpose again. That's why I've been able to overcome things in the past. That's what's missing now is I don't have a purpose. And just authentically, I started having people like yourself reaching out and saying, hey, I've heard, you know, through the GoFundMe that the guys at work started, that GoFundMe went, you know, I, I don't know what the standards are to say viral, but for my experience, it went viral. Like within 72 hours, they raised like $60,000 to support me and my family and my care. And that was huge. And so, and you know, I actually enjoyed getting on there and typing updates and thanking people. And so I had people start reaching out that were reading these updates and they're like, can you come share your story on my podcast? Can I come interview you? You know, whatever. And people would come to the hospital while I was still in the hospital. And so that became my purpose was becoming the person that everybody else saw, but at the same time, acknowledging that it wasn't linear, it wasn't a pretty path, that I did have some failures, that I did want to quit. Because we can learn a lot through that. And, you know, I don't I don't toot my own horn. I think I'm I'm a pretty humble guy. But I have people that send me messages and they're like, I've felt like this for a long time and I haven't said anything or sought any help, but to see that you were able to go public and share this experience with people gave me the strength to reach out for the help that I needed. And as soon as I got the first message that was along those lines, it was clear to me what my purpose was. And, and that's why we're here today. And that's how I got invited to take part in the 7X project is through sharing that story. And Ryan Parrott heard it through Christian Myers, who's both, you know, Christian's going on the trip. And I don't know how 
I got brought up in a conversation between the two. But after a meeting that they had, Christian called me and said, hey, we're doing this thing. You want to come? And at first I was like, dude, there's no way my body can endure seven marathons in seven days with like, I'm still having reparative surgeries. I had three this last year and I have two scheduled for 2023. So it's like, I'm in no place to do that. And he's like, well, let's figure out what you can do because we want you to come with us. And so, yeah, so I'll be trying to swim as much as I can, but I'm also going to run. And the main piece that I'm going to be running is Katie Hernandez. I think you had her on your podcast recently. Yep. Um, So Katie world record holder for the bomb suit, one mile run. She's going to be bringing her bomb suit, but it takes two people to get that thing on. So I volunteered to be her partner, but then I'm not going to take the easy way and just run flick next to her. I'm going to be in full kit running alongside her. And then she has goals of making me wear the bomb suit at least once. So, um, which is going to be entertaining because Katie is, I think, a whole foot shorter than i am so and it's sized for her not me well i'll make sure that we're recording (laughs) yeah definitely definitely well i want to circle around on a couple things just quickly so firstly when you came out of the seizure you're blind was there any point where you wondered if you were actually a reindeer by that point man there there were a lot of weird thoughts that came through (laughs) my head and there's a couple contributing factors to that. Um, one of them was the washout and debridement surgeries were so invasive that I would I would wake up in excruciating pain because they're literally just scraping the inside of my body out. And I would wake up and my body would go into shock from all the pain once the anesthesia wore off and so they countered that by as soon as the anesthesia wore off they would hit me with ketamine a nice hefty dose of ketamine and i disappeared to another dimension for 30 minutes and then it was like a slow fade back into reality and to someone that's never experienced ketamine and I'm not condoning recreational experimentation, but whether it's been, you know, now ketamine is being used for mental health therapies. Um, but it's also, correct me if I'm wrong, it's an analgesic or a disassociative. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I had a uh, Katie Walker on the show talking all about that. The nurse, anesth- a nurse, nurse anesthetist who is using it now for mental health as well. Okay. So, I didn't have a therapist to talk through these experiences with, but I had some crazy out of body world. Like I, I just remember I would come out of it and it would be like, Holy shit. It all makes sense now. Like I had just a different view of life. And I often would wonder though, because it was almost like I separated from my body have this view of, of what heaven is or what the afterlife is. And then I would come back into my body and I would often wonder if I was ending one life and just picking up another one in another dimension. 
if you will. Like we like, I didn't know what to think of it because I didn't have anyone to talk to about it, but I was like, what's real and what's not, I don't know for the longest time. Um, so there were definitely times that I probably thought like, maybe I'm a reindeer now, which would be cool. <laughs> well, another thing that you touched on as well, just to jump in again is when you hear, and I'm sh- I don't know. I don't know if this is how you thought, but I think a lot of us listening earlier on, our view of suicide was, well, how could they do that? It's so selfish. It's so cowardly. And then I interview all these people that have either been there or two of them have actually, you know, succeeded. Well, they succeeded in an attempt. They they went through with their attempt and they survived. Whether it was jumping off a bridge or, or shooting themselves. Um, and this seems like it's the same thing over and over again, not with every single one, but with most of them. And you, you just don't hear it discussed in this mental health conversation. And that is the feeling of being a burden. And what's been interesting as I've unpacked this with all these you know, different people, a lot of these men and women are in professions where they would lay down their life for the man to the left of them or right to them or for the person that we serve in our community. And so you have this growing ill health of the mind you know whether it's i mean it's usually a compounding factor of so many things childhood trauma you know the actual things that we see and do in our profession organizational stress sleep deprivation psychiatric meds alcohol and you've got this perfect storm but when people think of suicide they're like well think about your wife think about your kids the real aha moment for me was like fuck that is one of the worst things that we can say to someone who's in crisis because they are they're still terrified, but they're doing what they think is the right thing for their wife, for their kids. Even though it makes no sense to a healthy mm-hmm. mind, it makes perfect sense to a broken mind. Yeah. Real quick, didn't you recently have a girl named Emma on your podcast? Emma Benoit. Yeah, that was a little while ago, but wasn't she amazing? She lives here in Baton Rouge. Oh, that's right. She does. Yes. And um, so my wife works for Lululemon and she has come and shared her story with the Lululemon crew before. So you, I think you posted or you, you reshared something from her recently. Yes. And I was reading it and I was like, I know this story. And I like had to go call my wife and I was like, hey, that girl that came and talked at your store, I was like, because my wife's been trying to connect the two of us for for the last six months and and we just haven't been able to make it work but i was like what was her name and she told me and i was like man what a small world yeah Yeah. amazing she's yeah i don't know her personally i just know my wife has told me and she sounds like an amazing girl with an amazing story and again somebody whose story is going to save a lot of lives and the, the courage that she has now, because, you know, the, this is the sad reality of some of these people that survive these attempts is physically they're in a worse place than they were prior. But again, I think if I'm not mistaken, Emma, just like Kevin um, Hines and so many other people, the moment that they actually went through with the attempt, there was an immediate feeling of remorse and reality just kind of slams back but for sadly most of the people they never get that second chance well emma had that second chance and the the things that she's done with that platform and she's still you know in a wheelchair most of the time she's able to walk somewhat she's in you know what seems to be an incredible relationship now but i've had all these guests on the show but a lot of them are from our professions 
So yeah. I had someone recently whose child was going through some stuff when they were high school. I'm like, I've got the exact conversation you need to listen to. I'm going to send mm-hmm. you Emma's episode because she was an 18-year-old girl, you know, beautiful girl, cheerleader and everything, but you listen. And she had a great upbringing. It wasn't really a kind of an acute childhood element, but it was that fear of, you know, what am I going to do? In, in, a, in a few months' time, I'm graduating. I'm out in the big wide world. I don't know what I'm doing. There was an element of bullying in her school. And for her, mm-hmm. that was enough of a compounding element to take her to that particular moment and then, as like I said, there was an immediate regret. But now that purpose for her, and it's not going to define her the rest of her life, but for now, it's being a voice for so many, especially high school girls and high school boys who are struggling silently the same way that first responders and military veterans do. Yeah, yeah. I think here in the next week or two, she's speaking at my daughter's high school and sharing that experience. Um, but yeah, for me, it was... When I kind of started to come back to reality when I was out of that, you know, I would say it was a pretty manic state that I, you know, wanted to take my life. Um, it wasn't, it was, it was a combination of a lot of things, but I think one of the main ones is I was just physically exhausted of, from, of fighting. And I also, you know, I had a lot of self-induced stress from decisions I had made that were now coming to the surface. I've been fighting for my life for six months. I, my wife's exhausted because she's taking care of me. She's taking care of a teenager. She's working full time still. It was like, and and I didn't have a purpose. And so that was what drove me to that point. And, you know, I was lucky somebody intervened before I even had a chance to try. But yeah, I, I just didn't want to fight anymore. It wasn't a, a, it wasn't even really a depressed thing. I, I just, I had literally, was literally fighting for my life. And then there was also additional stress on top of that. And then I just didn't have the energy to even think about how to attack that stress. And so giving up was just, it really felt like the only option. And so I know what you mean. You know, we, we hear all the time that suicide is, is cowardly. Do I condone suicide? Absolutely not. But I, I can understand that some people may be in a place where like, it's so bad that that does feel like the best option. And, and if people say, no, that's, that can't ever be the case then they probably haven't ever experienced something that bad. But we all have our breaking points. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Well, the genesis of what we're about to embark on, 7X, um, you know, it's more than just the seven days. It's the the research study that is the build-up for these athletes to do a skydive, a marathon, a swim, 
in seven continents in seven days and then that's the breakdown portion that kind of simulates you know 9-11 or an afghanistan deployment or you know the grenfell fire and then we're studying them as we put them back together hopefully um and then that's going to create a docu-series going to create a manual which will be tools for people to holistically look at the whole body for physical health and mental health we there's an element of TBI in in David Metcalf's story as well as the the PTSD. Yeah. You know, talk to me with that lens. What are some? Of, we talked about your own journey. You know, what are some of the the stories of members of your community that you've lost through these compounding elements? Oh man. Um, so suicide throughout. I mean. Throughout my 10 and a half year career, you know, I lost guys throughout that 10 and a half years due to suicide. A lot of times it's post-deployment. It's guys find it hard to reintegrate back into their families or, you know, there's marital issues, whether it was on his side or her side, you know, there was, with especially in the regular army, like, when I was in 10th mountain division, we did a 15 month deployment and that's a long time to be away from home. And a lot of guys get married before they deploy so that they'll make more money. Their wife, their girlfriend can be taken care of while they're gone. And they didn't have a solid foundation. I don't, I can't count how many guys I've seen come back from deployment found out that their wife met someone else while they were gone. And that was the straw that, that broke the camel's back and, and cost them their life. Um, in addition to that, I think we do a lot of damage to ourselves. We, for years, it, it, it's been frowned upon to talk about mental health. It's been frowned upon to even talk about physical health and physical injuries, you know, because now you have to be, you know, if you come back and you complain about something and they find out that you need to have surgery to repair it. Now that's time that you can't train with the team and, and nobody wants to be that guy. And that, so we just keep our mouth shut and we just bite our tongue and we just go through same with our mental health. And then eventually it compounds and compounds until it's uncontrollable. And what we need to be doing is, is focusing on the maintenance. You know, we do, we do maintenance on our cars. We do maintenance on our guns. We do maintenance on our radios to make sure that they operate the way that we want them to when we need them to. Why don't we do that with ourselves? it's always a reaction it, or, or, you know, it's starting to shift, but for the longest time, it's always been a reaction when we take care of ourselves. It's a reaction to something else that happened. We're reacting where, what we should do is we should come back from deployment. We come, you know, or, or, you know, in my case, like you spend two years in the hospital and you have multiple surgeries, you got to find that, true north again you've got to get that baseline you've got to have you can't just immediately start you know if you go on a deployment and you didn't train the whole time you just executed missions and you come back home and you go to the firing range you're not immediately going to start doing advanced marksmanship drills you're going to go back to the basics you're going to start focusing on the fundamentals and build upon that 
but we haven't been doing that with our bodies. And so I think that's something that the 7X project is really, I think that's what this manual and this documentary is going to do is it's going to give people the tools to get back to that true North, to find that baseline and clear up this set of problems before you start introducing a new set of problems. Um, but with, you know, my experience with suicide in the service, that hasn't always been available. That hasn't always been an accepted mindset for years. It was, if you said something about not feeling right in your head, you were looked at as weak. And in some commands that I operated in, that if you spoke up that you needed to go talk to somebody because you were having family issues, it doesn't even have to be job related, but Hey, me and my, my wife are going through a divorce. I'm struggling with it. I want to go see psych. They immediately tried to get you out of the unit because you were a liability to them. So that tells everybody else, I'm not going to tell them when I'm having problems. And that's unfortunately what caught what most of the suicides that I have seen were were caused by is lack of vulnerability. But at the same time, they were told not to be vulnerable. They were trained to not be vulnerable. And then in addition to that, I think the other leading cause that I've seen is guilt, survivor's guilt. Um, That I said, and I'm, I'm dealing with that with a friend of mine right now. Um, he was a Green Beret. He's retired now. Saw some things in his career, but recently we we're actually in a motorcycle club together. And shout out to the Special Forces Brotherhood Motorcycle Club. Um, but this guy recently was out riding bikes with another brother from the club, and he went down. No, I don't want to use his name because I don't want to put too much of his personal business out there. But friend A went down on his motorcycle and died. Friend B, Green Beret, recently retired, has been going through some marital struggles. He's now at the end of his rope. And it's it's a ticking time bomb. And I this isn't a phrase that I came up with, but I've heard it and I use it, is that these are the times you don't isolate, you've got to insulate those people. And um, he has since decided to step away from the club, but we've talked about it and we're trying to keep as much of a grasp on him as we can, because I don't want to see it again, but he definitely from the talks that we had after our buddy crashed and passed away, he definitely is, is holding on to a lot of that in an unhealthy way. And, and you can tell he just doesn't know what to do with it. So, so yeah, those are, those are a couple of, of my experiences. Um, I was the first time I really experienced suicide. I was only 13 years old though, and had a classmate that I went to school with that hung himself at 13 crazy so yeah um 
you know, but at the same time, I can also say that I, I can understand what pushes people to that point because I felt it and I'm glad I'm not there anymore. And I hope I'm never there again. And I, and, and I now have things that I do that I apply to my life. I have my own processes that when I identify that I'm headed in, in that even remotely in that direction, I have people and I have, tools that I use to bring me back to center. And I hope that I can continue to have access to those tools and those people anytime that I need them. And I hope I can be a tool in a person. Well, I am a tool, but that's a different, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> um, but I hope that, that I can be that person to, to anyone that needs it too, because, and I hope I can share what I've learned, what helps me get out of it. And it's not drugs. It's not alcohol. It's not sex. It's not, it's, it's hard work. It's really what it is. It's, it's defining a purpose and then controlling your, you know, making sure that everything drives you towards that purpose, the people in your life, the activities you do, they have to be pushing you towards that purpose. Otherwise they're keeping it, you from it. But once you're really committed to it, then all of a sudden you're surrounded by individuals that are also going to drive you towards that purpose. And it makes it a lot harder to fail when you have that. And so purpose, I think is, is one of the biggest keys. I think it's one of the cornerstones of resiliency is identifying your purpose. And then after that, it's accepting whatever circumstances got you to the position you're in where you're depressed, where you want to commit suicide, where you want to leave it all behind. You have to accept what got you there. You can't deny it. You had some, in most cases, you had some contributing factor that got you there or you, or, or, you know, maybe you just had a really horrible childhood and you've carried this trauma your whole life and now you're just done. You can't carry it. You still have to accept whatever you got there. You have to be willing to move it along. You've got to be vulnerable. And then the final piece of it is you've got to find gratitude for it. Like I can honestly say now, and this is new to the last couple months, but all of the hurdles that I've jumped over in the last 10 years, I'm grateful that they happened because from each one, I learned something. I learned something about myself. I learned something about my relationships. I learned something about my values, my morals. And I like for the first time at 37 years old, I can say that I really genuinely am comfortable in my own skin because all those things happen and they led me to this. I'm grateful that they happen now in hindsight. Well, firstly, again, thank you for, for sharing those stories. It's so important for people to hear, you know, that everyone has these. I mean, it's so heartbreaking that there was a 13 year old that felt that that was the solution at that point, you know, and then here we are mm -hmm. now, you know, with so many other people since, but I think the other takeaway, which you've really underlined here is, and I was just talking about this with a podcast I was on earlier today. I think one of the things that we don't do very well in the mental health discussions is we go, and you've got PTSD, and, and here's how you can kind of deal with it, versus 
this is you know what happened to your leg your brain your you know your your mind and it wasn't like yeah and then i kind of dealt with it a little bit it was i got past that and i became even better than i was before do i have the exact mobility at my hip joint or you know do i get seizures mm -hmm. once in a while yes but this has created more resilience i think that's that's kind of the misunderstood concept is i think a lot of people that stand on on a pedestal talking about resilience almost preach like you know well i i never fail that's why i'm so resilient and i think it's the polar they, opposite yeah i think one of the most common misconceptions is that some people are just born resilient some people just have a resilient personality in order to be resilient you have to experience hardship and you like that's just the bottom line and I would argue that you have to fail too. If you've never failed, if you've never experienced hardship, then how do you even know what resilience is? Because the, I mean, the definition is overcoming adversity, overcoming hardship. If you never experienced hardship, then what did you overcome? You know? So yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting topic because I feel like it's, it's one of those catchphrases now that's used way too often by people that I think they, they did some impressive things, but not all of them have actually demonstrated resilience. They've just had an impressive life so far. Um, yeah. And then it's, it's a word you can like, when I first got out of the hospital, people were telling me I was resilient because I survived. But I wasn't resilient. In my head, I still wanted to die. And so it's it's misused a lot, I think. Um, it's over overused a lot. But I think that there are some skills that we can, you know, again, we talked earlier about how we learn a lot through retrospect and I can take everything that I've learned over the last 10 years, getting out of the military, getting hit by a car, going into the hospital with flesh eating bacteria. I can take everything I learn and I can't share that experience with someone, but I can share where my downfalls were, what I learned from them and what I, what the takeaway was. And I can pass those skills on. And in some ways there are, there are tangible skills that I learned throughout that, that I apply to my life now so that when the next thing happens, whatever it may be, the next hurdle I come to, I'll already have a plan in place for how I'm going to come out better on the other side, because I took inventory of what's worked and what didn't work in the past. And that's what's built resilience for me. Beautiful. Well, Zach, we've been chatting for almost three hours. And it's funny, we had two hours planned. And you said how you just did a one recently in three hours and it was exhausting. So I hope you're not exhausted again. But no, we started the one last night. We started at this time. We're ending. Ah, okay. And it went three hours. So... I'm good now. Good, yeah. good, good. But I just want to thank you so much, though. It's been 
such a, a you know interesting perspective. I mean, from you know your journey into the military as a, a high functioning you know, tactical athlete through to all these debilitating you know traumatic and medical things that you had, and then your mental health story as well. Um, it's it's been amazing to hear, and and resilience is what comes out of this. But you've you know it's taken three hours to really storytell you know the nuances and some of the lowest points that you found yourself but i am so excited to share a plane with you in a month's time actually a month from today we'll be in antarctica so i know i was gonna say that (laughs) awesome and tomorrow a month from tomorrow we'll be in australia yes and the 21st we'll be back in in london i've never entered my home country with a bunch of special operations and special forces <laughs> soldiers oh, running in the heart man. of the, the, the city. So it's going to be pretty phenomenal. I'm stoked. I can't wait. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you so, so much. And uh, for people listening, where are the best places on social media and online to find you? Um, my Instagram is my first name, Zach, Z-A-C-K underscore next underscore door which there's a long story behind this. I'll tell you on the plane. Um, but yeah, Zach next door with two underscores in there. And that's the main place. Other than that, um, I keep my LinkedIn up to date. I'm a big networker. I always want to expand my network and you never know when you're going to need someone that fulfills something for you. Um, and LinkedIn is a great way to get connected with people professionally. It's also how I've, you know, I post all these podcasts on there because most of my network is the special operations community. And that's who I hope that my story resonates with more than anyone. So I also post everything under, it's just Zachary Garner on LinkedIn. And I've got a YouTube channel, but I don't know what to put on there yet. I've, uh, the only thing that's on there is the three minute little teaser trailer video I made for the seven X project that tells my piece of it. So, um, yeah, you can look me up under Zachary Garner on YouTube too, but there's not much there. Beautiful. I haven't got much on mine either, (laughs) so I can relate. Well, again, thank you. We'll have to get some good content while we're out there. Oh, absolutely. I still won't put it on YouTube, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, I just want to say thank you so much for being so vulnerable today, taking the time to really tell your story and uh, being so generous with your time. So thank you so much. Absolutely, man. Thank you for the opportunity. You're a great host. And yeah, if you need any other people, I'd be happy to recommend some to you. (laughs) 